0: The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Imagine for a moment coming face to face with a killer. The only problem is you don't know that this person is a killer. There is a reaction in your gut that something doesn't feel right. The hairs on your neck stand up, and you feel as though you must avoid eye contact and walk away. And you do. Later on you hear about a child abduction and murder and the city you live in is in a panic. Years later you see a news segment about a man who is accused of murdering and eating his victims only to realize he was the man you once came face to face with years before. What follows is the account by Willis Morgan and his encounter with now infamous serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer and what he believes is the connection between the kidnapping and murder of Adam Walsh. This is Serial Spirits, the podcast, part one of the Walsh Dahmer Conspiracy with Willis Morgan.
2: Should have killed four or five hundred people then I would have felt better than when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening
1: to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Guys, welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea. This is part one of a two-part interview with Willis Morgan. We've sat down and talked to him for almost three hours about this case. And I'm not even going to get into it because I'm just going to let her do all the talking right now on the podcast. It's crazy, guys. And let me tell you what, when you get done listening to both parts, you'll be a believer just like me so here it is we've sitting down with willis morgan talking about Jeffrey Dahmer's connection to the Adam Walsh kidnapping and murder
0: it was July twenty seventh, 1981 Walsh's wife Revae and their six-year-old son Adam were at this Sears store in the Hollywood mall Revae let Adam watch a group of older boys play video games while she was three aisles away shopping for a lamp when she returned about five to ten minutes later Adam was nowhere to be found. Literally thousands of posters just like these are being distributed
2: all over Florida.
0: The Walsh's launched what's still considered today Florida's largest search for a missing child.
2: He's our only child, He's a beautiful little boy, and we just want him back more than anything.
0: I just want that person to know
1: that we want to help them as well as Adam.
0: In July 1981, six-year-old Adam Walsh, the son of America's Most Wanted host John Walsh, was abducted from a mall in Hollywood, Florida. Two weeks later, his decapitated head was found in a canal nearby. For years, various eyewitness reports rolled into local authorities, but a confession by an infamous serial killer, Otis Toole, trumped these accounts and the search ended. But throughout the years, Tips continued to roll in and Tool's confession floundered. Another infamous name was dropped in the case decades later and was seemingly supported by many of these eyewitness accounts. This second name was serial killer and cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer. Is it possible that Dahmer was responsible for the most infamous child murder in U.S. history? What evidence exists to support this case? On this episode, we speak with former reporter and author of the book, Frustrated Witness, Willis Morgan. Willis will recount his encounters with Jeffrey Dahmer on the day that Adam Walsh disappeared, along with all of the evidence he has collected over the past decades to help support his case. Willis Morgan, we're going to bring you on now. Thank you so much for being part of Serial Spirits podcast. How are you today?
2: I'm very good. Thank you.
0: So I'm going to first to begin, I have to thank our mutual friend Tessa Morrow for kind of introducing the two of us and introducing me to this case. And I want to be very honest and upfront at first when she told me this story and she began recounting some of these uh, witness encounters to me. I didn't think there was any way possible that any of this information could actually mean that Adam Walsh had murdered Jeffrey Dahmer. It just sounded or uh, that Jeffrey Dahmer had murdered Adam Walsh. It sounded so far-fetched, and I remember the stories about his abduction, but then once I heard about your encounters, I heard you recount your stories. And I heard all of these other eyewitnesses come forward and tell their stories and reading through information, articles that have compiled throughout the years. I believe it's not only possible, but it's plausible that these stories are true, that Jeffrey Dahmer actually did abduct and murder Adam Walsh. So to begin with, Willis, I want you to tell a little bit of your background Uh, where you're from, how you came into this case.
2: Okay. Originally, I'm from New York, Long Island. And uh, in 1972, I moved to Florida following my parents down here. I ended up taking a job with the Miami Herald Publishing Company. And 1981 was about my going, I was going on my 10th year at the Miami Herald. And so Back then, we were working four-day work weeks, so uh, 40 hours, 10-hour shifts. So Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday were my days off. And it was on a Monday, July 27, 1981, that I decided to go to the Hollywood Mall. I was going to have lunch at a a deli in there, which was uh, affectionately called the German Deli, but uh, originally it was called Lawson's, and then it became, uh, after they expanded, it became the Hollywood Mall Deli. But everyone affectionately call it, called it the German deli. So uh, it was around 11 o'clock. I left my house. I went to the mall. I was in Walden's bookstore for about 20 minutes. And then I started to head down to the deli. But since Radio Shack was on the same side, I decided to stop off in Radio Shack first. And it was there that I had this bizarre encounter that um, forever would be a part of me. Because it, it brought me into this case because of the encounter that I had in that Radio Shack.
0: So let's back up a little quickly for anyone who is listening and may not know this story. July 27th, 1981 in Hollywood, Florida, little Adam Walsh disappears from the mall there. Later, his decapitated head is found in a nearby canal and his father was John Walsh, who began one of the most popular crime shows uh, of all time called America's Most Wanted. And so we're linking these stories, your encounter there, back to what happened with Adam Walsh on the day he disappeared, correct? Correct. So let's talk about the encounters that you had there. What transpired there at Radio Shack? Describe the encounter and the person that you had this with.
2: Right. Well, as I walked into Radio Shack, uh, they had two aisles, one to the left, one to the right. uh, And then there was a center, uh, kind of like a a wall with, with items on the wall on both sides. And at the front of that was a table. And had some items piled up on the table and it said red tag sale and each item had a little red tag with a special discounted price on it. So as I headed to the right side of the aisle, uh, right side aisle, I started stopped and I started looking at some of the items on the table. And that's when I happened to notice in my peripheral vision that there was this guy standing there and I looked up and I noticed he was just standing there smiling at me. And I believe he came in from the north entrance and he stopped at the entrance to Radio Shack. And uh, when I looked at him, he smiled and said, hi there, nice day, isn't it? And my thinking was not to answer him because that would start a conversation. And my thinking was that he that's exactly what he was looking for, a conversation, obviously. You wouldn't say hi to somebody, you know, without wanting to have a conversation.
0: Right.
2: So I didn't answer him thinking if I don't answer, he'll just leave. So I started looking back at the item I had. But instead of leaving, he came into the radio shack, came right up to me. And he repeated again, hi there, nice day, isn't it? Just like that. And I'm thinking, oh boy, this guy really wants somebody to talk to really bad. And he wouldn't leave. He's just standing, hovering over me. And so uh, little by little, you know, I looked at him again. And I could see he was getting upset that I wasn't responding. And it became more and more bizarre until finally, to keep it short, that he finally just turned around and stomped out of the radio shack, you know, like he was punching holes through the floor with his feet. I mean, he was really upset, like mm-hmm. a little kid that had his toy taken away or something, you know? I mean, that's how upset he was. But the way he stomped out of the radio shack, and that encounter I had was so bizarre. I mean, I gave you just the briefest of descriptions. Right. Um, but uh, anyway, I, 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 the fact that it was so bizarre that I knew he was going to go approach somebody else because he seemed so desperate to talk to somebody. And so I just went to the Radio Shack entrance just to look down and see if he was going to approach, you know, somebody or wh- what he was doing and all. And I saw he was crossed to the other side of the hallway and he was walking deeper and deeper into the mall. And I was watching because my thinking was somebody's going to be in trouble here mm-hmm. because I really thought that I was going to end up having to fight with this guy. Cause I mean, he wouldn't leave me alone. So I was watching him because I was wondering if somebody is going to need help. I had no clue what what this guy was up to. Right. But at the most I was thinking he was going to approach somebody my age. I was 34 at the time and this guy was 21 years old. Now he never told me his name. So I have no clue who the guy was at the time, but I remember I I was following him. I knew I had to remember his description. So I kept repeating everything back to myself. And then finally he turned into Sears and Because it was a slow day, there was nobody for him to approach. Otherwise, he looked like he was looking around. He wanted to approach somebody, but there really wasn't anybody. He ended up to the west side of Sears, and he turned right, and then he turned into the toy department, because I walked down to that area, and I saw him turn into the toy department. But I didn't go any further. My thinking was, you know, that's the end of Sears, and if he turns around, realizing it's the end, he's going to turn around and come back my way, and I didn't want another encounter. Right. I did stand there for a minute wondering what he was doing in that toy department. But then I was thinking maybe he's playing the video games. And, you know, I just turned around and left and went home. And even after I left, I remember thinking that I was going to tell there was these two girls at a jewelry counter. I was going to tell them to call the police. Keep in mind, this is before Adam was abducted. I had no clue anybody was going to be abducted. Because, you know, in 1981, you never think a child is going to be abducted. Right. My thinking was he was just going to try to, you know, just lonely and he wanted someone to talk to so anyway i i left and even after i got to the exit where my car was on the east side of the mall where the food court was i even turned around and looked to make sure this guy didn't you know follow me back because i didn't want him following me out in the out in the parking lot and you know have another encounter encounter out there but he didn't so i left i got in my car went home and later on that evening I happened to be in the kitchen. had the TV on to one of the local news stations, and I hear about this uh, a little boy that went missing from the Hollywood Mall. I'm going, "Oh wow, the Hollywood Mall! I was there today." You know, I'm thinking to myself. And then it said uh, that it was a possible abduction. They were saying. Then it said toy department. They said the time, and I was like, "The time was right. That's the time I was there, around noontime." You know, and. It was in the toy department. Everything was just, I, right away, I just knew. I kept thinking to myself, I just said, that guy, that guy did it. He actually did it. I knew it had <laughs> to be that guy. There was no question. How, how could it not be that guy? This guy was so dirty, disheveled, stunk of beer. It, I, I just knew it had to be that guy. So I had no clue who he was. But I still went to the police. I went to the police and I told him my story. But they just totally rebuffed me. They 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 dismissed me outright because I didn't have a receipt to prove I was there. I didn't buy anything. I never bought anything when I went into Waldens. I, I looked around for about twenty minutes. I didn't see anything I really wanted, so I left. And I never made it to the German Deli. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't have kept a receipt, you know. But I, I went into the uh, Radio Shack. Didn't buy anything. But had no proof. I had no way to prove I was there because that's all they wanted. And then they wanted to know what the tag number of the vehicle was. And I told them this didn't happen outside. It was inside the mall. I didn't get a tag. No, I didn't see a vehicle, you know? Mm-hmm. And they just said, well, if we need you, we'll call you. And-
0: so did you call the police immediately after this happened or no. the following day?
2: Yeah, it was two days later. Okay. Actually, so remember this was Monday, right? I was, I was off Sunday, Monday and Tuesday. It wasn't until Wednesday when I went back to work, And I was telling co-workers about what happened because it was still in the news big time. You know, every day was getting more and more publicity. And when I was telling co-workers, they said, hey, man, you need to go to the police. And so it was Thursday. This was on the Monday. It wasn't until Thursday morning. Soon as after I got off of work, I get off work like five o'clock in the morning. I didn't go to bed. I just waited till about nine o'clock in the morning. And then I went to the police.
0: So at this point, Adam Walsh is still missing. You go to the police. They basically say, Well, you can't prove that you were there. You have no receipts. They kind of just pushed you to the side. You're working at the Miami Herald, which is this large publication down there. How do you remember the story there playing out in the news media? Was it, you know, obviously, there it, it's a hotly covered story, but let's flash forward, you know, a couple of weeks later. August the 10th, I believe it was that they recovered Adam's head in that nearby canal. What do you remember about the story as it played out in the media there?
2: Well, you know, it, it, it did. It was a big story, not just down here, but everywhere in the country and even around the world, this was a huge story. And I was actually depressed. In fact, after, after that, Abduction. I felt so bad about it, I actually joined one of the search teams to look for Adam. But, you know, like everybody else, I had no clue what could have happened to him. And so they broke us down into teams of about 10 people, and we went, uh, broke, went to different neighborhoods. We were searching backyards, garbage cans, looking for anything that could have belonged to Adam. And they gave us a description of all the things we would be looking for, like the flip-flops, the... Uh, the uh, IZard, uh T-shirt, striped T-shirt that he was wearing, his shorts, you know, his uh, captain's hat that he had on that day, you know, and we never found anything. And, um, you know, that was just a total waste. But uh, I actually felt bad, and I joined one of those teams. And I remember when I read, uh, read in the new, uh, newspaper, because, you know, I worked for a newspaper, and uh, that Adam was up, uh, his severed head was found, and I was <laughs> devastated.
0: That happened over the course of two weeks, they find his remains and in the back of your mind is still this, you know, really disturbing encounter that you had with a man there that you recounted to the police. What happened after that? Because you have spent the last 40 years plus gathering evidence from other people who have had similar or had similar encounters with a man that fit that same description even as far back as a couple of weeks before you had your encounter there with that man. So how did you get into this story so deep? How did you come in contact with all of these other eyewitnesses who, you know, some of them came forward decades later to tell their stories?
2: Right. Well, let me say, when I went to the police, okay, and they dismissed me, what they did do was they... They took my name, phone number, and they said, if we need, to, if we need you, we'll call you. But they never called me. And then about the same time the severed head was found, because it was like, you know, maybe 10 days later, composites started coming out. And some of those composites were like this, almost the spitting image of the guy I, I encountered. And when I saw some of these composites, I knew whoever gave those composites saw the same person I saw, and they were describing the same person just from looking at the composite. So my thinking was, okay, well, at least they have their composite. There's nothing more I can do because all they wanted was a tag number and proof I was there. I had neither of those, so I let it go. I didn't really go back to the police or do anything until uh, several years later, in, uh, I think it was around 1983, I was going to work one night and as I walk into the press room, we have a department with about 300 people. I wasn't a reporter, by the way. I was just in production end of the paper okay. in the, of running the printing presses. Mm-hmm. I was a supervisor in the press room. But anyway, we had a, a department with about 300 personnel. And so we had a, a, a secretary. She did like the payroll and things like that. And as I walked into the office, Monica, the secretary, she said, Willis, did you see this guy in the mall? Because the first edition had already come out uh, before I went to work. And she showed me the paper. And it was uh, this uh, disheveled-looking guy, creepy-looking guy. And it wasn't him. So I told her, I said, no, that's not him. She said, are you sure? Because he's saying he did it. So later I read the article, and it was this guy named Artis Elwood Tool, who confessed to it. And sure enough, I'm reading. This guy's (laughs) confessing. But I knew that wasn't the guy because I, I, I knew beyond a doubt it had to be the guy. Because, you know, they say, Annie, there's no coincidences in murder. Right. And it can't be just a coincidence that a guy that I had this gut feeling about that I followed because I've never in my life followed anyone before Adam's abduction or since. But yet that was the, the one and only time I got this gut feeling that this guy was bad news, he was mm-hmm. troubled, trouble, the look in his eyes, he had this dead dull look in his eyes. I knew he was bad. And I followed him right to the toy department. And then when I hear that a child gets abducted at the same time this guy walked into the toy department, that it had to be that guy. Right. And it wasn't this guy, Monica was showing, that was in the article that Monica was showing me. So I told him, no, that's not him. My thinking was, well, the police will figure it out in short order because obviously this is not the guy. But they didn't. They went four months trying to pin this uh, Adam's murder on this guy.
0: For anyone who isn't familiar with the name, Otis Tool, Otis Tool was a serial killer who came forward in the 1980s and he, along with his partner in crime, a man named Henry Lee Lucas, confessed to hundreds of murders over the course of many years across the U.S. There was a recent Netflix documentary called The Confession Killer that focused on Henry Lee Lucas and his life story. And what this story basically said was that, yes, in the 1980s, Henry Lee Lucas confessed to hundreds of of murders. He later recanted the majority of these confessions, stating that he was coerced by local law enforcement. And the same thing came out about Otis Tool as well. He basically said that he confessed to these murders and he recanted the majority of them. So Otis Toole was already in prison and now he's confessing to the most famous child murder in the history of the united states but yet there was no evidence actually linking the two of them correct i believe at the time that adam disappeared Otis was actually in prison in another state
2: correct well no he he arrived back in florida uh on i believe it would have been the 25th the late in the afternoon on the 25th he arrived in jacksonville he was uh Carless and penniless. He, and he was in a hospital in Newport News, Virginia, uh, for depression. And after he got out on Friday, he uh, went to the, um, the local Salvation Army. And they gave him a check made out to Greyhound. Okay, And there's proof uh, with a phone call because uh, the Salvation Army required proof that he would be employed once he got back to Jacksonville. So he made a phone call to his uh, former employer, which is um, South, Co- Co- Roofing, South Coast Roofing, I believe it is. And so that rec- uh, phone call has been recorded by the Salvation Army as uh, proof that, uh, for that for him to receive that check. Uh, again, it was for about seventy-eight dollars. They made it out to the Salvation uh, to the Greyhound bus uh, station, and so he took the check and traded that check in for a uh, bus ticket to Jacksonville. So um, that's a 14-hour drive. So by the time he got back to Jacksonville, it was like late Saturday afternoon, and he still had to walk to the roofing company to get his job back. So he, he had no car, no money, no not, not anything. And, he, and according to Betty Goodyear, she said that uh, somebody by the name of John was picking him up for work every day because he didn't have a car. It would be like a year later before he got that Cadillac. After Adam's abduction. He never had the Cadillac during Adam's abduction. So
0: it wasn't actually feasible that he could have been in Hollywood, Florida at the time that Adam was abducted? No, of course not.
2: Plus, Adam wasn't the only abduction. He was, may have been the only successful abduction. There were others. There was one two weeks before Adam on July 13th at the uh, Riviera, in, uh, Riviera Beach, the Twin City Mall. And it was in another Sears on another Monday, about the same time of day, by a six-foot white male with a blue band, and the composites matched the Hollywood Mall composites. So that was July thirteenth, okay? So Artis didn't arrive back in Florida until late July twenty-fifth. So for the July thirteenth incident, he definitely wasn't in Florida. So if you believe those witnesses, and you can listen to those witnesses on my uh, website frustratedwitness.com, because I've done other radio shows with them, and uh, many of them, and uh, Ginger Keaton took her, her son to the Sears, and that incident is exactly what uh, mirrors the Adam Walsh incident, where Revey took her son to the uh, Sears in Hollywood Mall. The only difference that there is is that Revey went to Sears to shop for a lamp, and Ginger Keaton went to the Riviera Beach um, Sears to shop for a dress. Other than that, everything is the same. While Terry Keaton was in the toy department, a man came in and tried to abduct him, but he was 10 years old and he managed to get away. So after Adam was abducted, two weeks later, the police chief, John Atwater from Riviera Beach, called the Hollywood Police Department. He told them, hey, we think this uh case is related to your case because everything is matching. There was a white male with a blue van, just like in the Adam Walsh case. Their composites matched the Hollywood Mall composites. So the Hollywood Police Department sent two of their detectives up there to check it out. And they completely dismissed it because they interviewed Terry Keaton. And they asked him if this guy touched him. He said, no, I got away. So then they said, oh, well, then there's nothing we can do about it. They dismissed it, even though the composites match and all the descriptions match. They completely dis- dismissed it, as well as the Hollywood uh, case they dismissed with the blue van and the description and the composites of this guy. Even though they matched each other, they dismissed it because it didn't match their suspect that they had at the time which was John Walsh's friend, James Campbell.
0: So let's talk about James Campbell briefly. You said he was the friend of John Walsh. Why did police immediately try to pin Adams' disappearance on James?
2: Because naturally they always look at the family first and the friends of the family. So that was a natural um, way uh, to start the investigation. And so they called James Campbell, and then during the interview, he confessed that while John was out working, that he was having an affair with John's wife, Ruby, and he even proposed marriage to her, and she turned him down because she had a son being Adam, with John and by coincidence, John told James to pack his things up and get out just two weeks before Adam was abducted, so naturally, they zealed in on him, thinking they had the motive, they had uh, everything you know that made him their prime suspect. So while all these other incidents were taking place, like the one I just mentioned in Riviera Beach, but also South Beach, uh, Plantation, Deerfield Beach, and others, they were dismissing everything. Police chiefs from these other cities were called, and they were dismissing the police chiefs. They was, these police chiefs from these other cities were even sending hard copies of their reports to the Hollywood Police Department. And they still dismissed everything. In some of these cases, they never even bothered calling the witnesses and interviewing them. So... They would. Uh, the lead detective was so convinced that he was going to get James Campbell.
0: So how did they eventually rule James Campbell out as a suspect?
2: Well, right. because John Walsh hired an attorney. His name was uh, John Barron, and he was like uh, known as the Silver Fox, uh, one of the best defense attorneys at the time down here. And he wrote a letter to the Hollywood Police Department saying they are not to talk to James Campbell without his presence. So they just stopped uh, interrogating him.
0: So he basically just walked away from it. He lawyered up and they said, don't talk to him anymore.
2: Right. Well, not that he necessarily lawyered up, but Mm -hmm. yes, uh, John Walsh hired the attorney.
0: Okay. So James Campbell comes forward as suspect number one, just basically because of his relationship with Adam Walsh's mother. There was really no evidence that linked the two of them together, right? As far as you're concerned, there was, you know, when you're talking about the composite sketches that come out, the blue van, uh, none of that was linked to James Campbell, correct?
2: No, right, right. James Campbell had nothing to do with this.
0: So their next um, suspect that comes forward doesn't come around until Otis Toole confesses, correct?
2: Correct. There's three suspects they have in this case over the years. James Campbell, Otis Toole, and the one you mentioned, Jeffrey Dahmer, But only one of them is the real suspect.
0: So you see this composite come out, um, or you saw the composite, you saw the picture come out of Otis Toole, and you said, this is absolutely not the man that I had the encounter with at the mall that day. So what led you down that path of contacting all these other witnesses that started to come forward and compiling all of this information together that you later put into a very convincing book.
2: Right. Well, keep in mind when I saw that photo of artist tool in the paper, that there were some major distinctions between artist tool and the the, uh, suspect that I saw in the Hollywood mall. Number one, like I said, the suspect and all the other witnesses described him as being around 20 years old. Okay. In fact, one, The oldest, one witness said he could have been 25. So the age limit is no more than 25 tops and and for, uh, 20 to 25. And I even, my, in my statement, I said he was about 20. But as it turned out, he was 21. Otis Tour at the time was 36, 34, 36. Big difference in the age. Plus, if you look at the composites that were given of the uh, suspect, he had a lot of hair. Disheveled, but never mind. But nevertheless, a lot of hair. who had a very, very high uh, hairline, so it's, there's definitely some major distinctions there. And Who looks nothing like the guy that any one of the witnesses seen at the mall that day.
0: And the composite comes out, and people later, years later, said, you know, it didn't look like Jeffrey Dahmer. But Jeffrey Dahmer, as he appeared in the media after he was arrested and Jeffrey Dahmer in 1981 didn't really look that similar, right?
2: Well, yeah, there are some major distinctions because, you know, it's almost 10 years to the week, less than a week, that he was captured. Keep in mind, it was in 1991, in July, I believe it was, that he was captured in Milwaukee. Well, Adam Walsh's case was July 27th, 1981. It was 10 years exactly, almost like I said, within less than a week. So... In 10 years, yeah, a lot of things have changed with Jeffrey Dahmer. Number one, he, he had a really dark tan. And I have that photo because he got arrested two weeks after he went back to uh, Ohio. He was arrested for drunken disorderly conduct. So a mugshot was taken. And it's that mugshot that looks more, the most like the person that abducted Adam because he still had longer hair, uh, his Florida tan, and, um, and it, it looks a lot more like... The person, but for me, since I had such a close encounter with this guy face to face, I recognize him immediately, even with the uh, current photo, a uh, mugshot that was in the paper of from 1991. I, I believe the uh, the mugshot they used was a uh, uh, an earlier an 86 mugshot that they used for the paper article, but still, I recognize him immediately.
0: How long was it until you started making contact with all of these other witnesses who had come forward to tell their stories that they had been or they'd had encounters with a man similar to the one that you had at the mall that day? And tell us about some of these encounters that you heard from these other eyewitnesses.
2: Right. Okay. Well, I want to say, and uh, after they closed the case in 2008, and they pinned it on Otis Tool. I was there at the closing, and after the closing, they were handing everybody a copy, all, all the media outlets. They were handing one copy to each media outlet uh, of the case files for free. And I tried to get a copy saying I worked for the Miami Herald because I did work for the Miami Herald. But, uh, you know, I was just in the production end. <laughs> but I still tried it. But um, sadly, I didn't get there quick enough, and a real reporter got one, and they said, oh, the Miami Herald already has that. We're only getting one per outlet. So I didn't get it. But I, I got uh, somebody from another newspaper that did get a copy. And we went over to uh, a store, which is FedEx now. But back then it was Kinko's. I don't know if you remember Kinko's. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and we, he made a copy of his from his. And I, so I got a copy of the case files. And I went home and I started looking through the case files. And that's when I became a uh, detective. You know, I started tracking down witnesses. And I, I learned all the little tricks on how to track people down, you know. Uh, one of the best uh, ways of finding people are uh, not from those paid sites because I did join some of those paid sites like Intellius and People Finders uh, and all these other sites and I joined a bunch of those. But uh, it was from the free sites like the uh, Broward County uh, Tax uh, uh, Office because my thinking was if anybody owns property it would show up there and sure enough a lot of some of the witnesses many of them in fact still live in Broward county and they own property owned a house here and i was able to find them but it doesn't give a phone number only an address so what i did was i actually went to these houses and i knocked on a door and i talked to them and um i remember one woman her name was jenny warren she passed away since then because even when i contacted her she was in the mid 80s so she was you know, already up in age. But when I knocked on her door, uh, this very soft voice answered the door. And She said, yes. And I said, hi, my name is Willis Morgan. I would like to talk to you about something that happened back in, keep in mind, this is uh, 2009 around then, right? right. Now, or, or late 2008. And so I said, I'd like to talk to you about something that happened back in 1981. And she said, you mean Adam Walsh? And I knew right away, at least I was at the right house. Oh, yeah. So I said, yes. And, you know, of course, I brought a portfolio with me of information. And she immediately opened the door then, and she let me in. We sat at the dining room table. Oh, But before she let me in, when she opened the door, she started crying. I mean, bawling and bawling. Her chest was heaving, tears just running down her face. She says, I'm sorry, but it wasn't him. It was the other guy. Oh wow! And I knew right away. I didn't have to ask her who the other guy was because they just closed the case. pinning on out of school. Right. She, so she invited me in, and she's telling me her story. And uh, her story is in my book. I have all the witnesses there. There's dozens of witnesses that were uh, from the Hollywood Mall as well as other locations. And so I have her whole story in my book, but uh, she started telling me that, you know, uh, when um, she went to the police, they kept dismissing her. They showed her a lineup. They tried to get her to sign and date the back of uh, an array of photos. They pointed to, uh, uh, she didn't recognize any of the photos because Dharma's picture wasn't in there. It was just uh, artist tools was one of them in there. She didn't recognize. So they even did what they're not supposed to do. You know, they pointed to one of the photos, the one about us tool. And they said, are you sure it wasn't this guy? And she said, no, it's that, that that wasn't the guy. And so they said, well, are you really sure? Because we have proof it was him. Hmm. Well, a lot of witnesses not wanting a murderer to get away will make that identification. But not getting right. one. She stuck to her guns and said, no, that's not him. So they just dismissed her and let her go. And so they would never really take her statement say, serious because she wouldn't identify Otis tool. But uh, when I went there, she definitely identified Jeffrey Dahmer and said that's who it was that she had the encounter with because she was face to face with this guy. She went there with her three grandkids and they stopped in the toy department because one of them wanted to look at some uh, dolls or something. And that's when she saw this dirty, disheveled gentleman. That's her words. Standing there, staring at the kids. And he didn't look like he belonged there with these kids. So that's her story.
0: So what Jeffrey Dahmer at that time had just been discharged from the army. He took a they basically gave him a plane ticket for a one way flight and he chose to go to Florida. And at the time that all of this occurred, he was living in the area. He was working at a local sub shop. Right. And when you say working, I guess you take that term very lightly because I think he spent more time actually, you know, kind of drunk and disorderly than, you know, kind of stumbling through work, I guess you would say.
2: Yeah. But he did have a resume. And so his his resume was dumpster diving. (laughs) That's how he got the job from dumpster diving. Oh, Yeah.
0: yeah. That's right. I did read that. So they found him basically, you know, foraging through a dumpster trying to survive. And they gave him a job at this sub shop. Well, so actually checks out that Jeffrey Dahmer was in that area at that time.
2: Right. Right. Well, actually, uh, you, know, you know, the, Ar- the army gives you a voucher that you could trade in at the airport for a ticket to anywhere in the United States. And he decided to come to Miami because he didn't want his father to know, that he was, did, he was a failure in the Army, so he didn't want to go back home. Plus, he says that uh, Ohio was too cold. He wanted to go to a place that was warmer, so that's why he chose Miami. But, um, yeah, he, he was uh, living uh, on the beach in the streets and getting a hotel maybe once a week, according to Jeffrey Dahmer's statements, just to take a shower, and he was drinking up all his money, and he ran out. Uh, what money he had, so he started dumpster diving, and um, he was dumpster diving behind a strip mall in Sunny Isles when the manager of the sub shop came out and saw him and asked him if he was hungry and he needed something to eat, so he brought him a sandwich, and then a couple days later, he saw him out there again, like you say, rummaging through the dumpster, and so he said, hey, you need a job, and he hired him as a busboy in his uh, sub shop. So that's why I say, uh, you know, his resume was dumpster diving. I don't know if too many people get a job by dumpster diving. But
0: <laughs> well, um, he, he had the terrible, uh, you know, misfortune of uh, hiring Jeffrey Dahmer. And so now Jeffrey is there working in this sub shop. You mentioned earlier a blue van that becomes well, an well, integral part. A bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: He got this job, and 10 days after he had the job, it was his job now to take the garbage out at the end of the shift around 5 o'clock uh, in the evening. So uh, about 10 days after he had the job, he was ta- he came, uh, came back from taking the garbage out, and he said to Ken in a very monotone, matter-of-fact voice, Ken, by the way, there's a dead man by your dumpster. so Ken goes out to look and sure enough there's this dead guy laying there on the ground so he calls the police the police come and naturally the police always ask who found the body so he said my busboy said well get him out here we need to speak to him so that's how Jeffrey Dahmer got his name all over this police report that's dated July 7th 1981 That's 20 days before Adam was abducted and 10 days after he had the job, which means he would have gotten that job around June 27th, a month before Adam. So he was working for a month before Adam was abducted.
0: But yeah, he's already finding dead bodies behind the store where he works.
2: And everything that he said in his FBI interview, the Milwaukee Police Department's interview, is a complete stark contrast to what's in that police report and what his boss says. Because when the Hollywood Police Department interviewed him, as well as Milwaukee and the FBI, he claimed that he didn't know anything about Adam when they they asked him. And uh, he doesn't know where the Hollywood mall is. He didn't have a vehicle. And he claimed that he was working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, never got any time off, but according to Ken, that's just an outright lie. Not true. He, he When Ken saw him, he hired him to work uh, just regular week hours, Monday through Friday. He paid him cash under the table on Friday. And then um, even then, he was getting sent home a lot because he would come in so dirty and disheveled, especially after about 10 days or um uh, maybe a month after he, he, he was hired, that he he started coming in really, really bad. Uh, and that was about the time after Adam was abducted. So if there's a correlation there. But uh, anyway, he said that uh, he would send him home and uh, a lot. And my thinking is that he was getting sent home on Mondays because Ken said he would come in the next day and manage to get through the rest of the week in a little bit better shape. And also, I was thinking that, The reason he's coming in Monday so disheveled is because he was getting paid cash on the weekends. He was drinking his checkup. He would come in so drunk and disheveled on Mondays that he would get sent home. Right. Which could be the reason. But I know one Monday for sure he he was definitely sent home because he was definitely at the Hollywood Mall that Monday on July 27th, 1981. And as well as the Monday on July 13th.
0: Was there any... Was there any uh, evidence of any type of a crime that had been committed there around the sub shop? What did they say about the body that was found behind there?
2: Okay, well, naturally, they asked Jeffrey, and Jeffrey knew everything about this guy. Jeffrey said his name was Bobby. He went by the name of Bobby. Jeffrey said he wasn't feeling well lately. And uh, Mr. Jeffrey Dahmer, as they referred to him in the police report, Mr. Jeffrey Dahmer said that uh, Bobby was drinking a lot, so you know when you're a derelict, you get a very uh you don't get a thorough medical exam right at the medical office, so they just went by pretty much what Jeffrey Dahmer said, and they just ruled it as an ex, a, a, a natural death for alcoholism. That guy would have had blood on him. maybe it would have been a different story. you know they wouldn't have been uh, so quick to rule it as natural causes, but after that. Uh, meter room was found because after I got a hold of that police report, when I heard about it, I got a copy. I started reading it and I realized right away, man, this is something wrong with this report because everything on here is in contrast to what Ken says. So anyway, I made a beeline straight for that meter room and I went in there and I knew right away, this has to be the place where he brought Adam. It had to be because I knew that when somebody is abducted, especially by somebody that's not familiar with the city, they're going to bring them to the place that they are the most familiar with. And that would be that meter room. And Jeffrey Dahmer, finding a dead guy, I wasn't buying that. I could understand in 1981, the police didn't know who Jeffrey Dahmer was. But by the time I found that police report in 2007, I knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was. And I knew right away, Dahmer had murdered that guy. Bobby. And Bobby didn't have no blood on him. And when ABC primetime flew down here from New York to do a TV show on that meter room, they hired one of the best CSI experts in the state of Florida, if not the country. And she went in there with blue luminal lighting and found all this blood spatter on the back wall. Wow. Right. And she describes it as being a high velocity blood spatter pattern indicative of homicide. So somebody was murdered in that meter room, and it wasn't Bobby. I mean, not from that blood spatter, at least. Bobby probably was murdered in the meter room, but it didn't cause that blood spatter. So whose blood spatter is it?
0: Was it ever examined any further? Did they try to collect samples yes. from the walls? Okay,
2: they did. they did. Jan Johnson, who was the uh, CSI expert that went in there, uh, she did a, a presumptive test with a field kit, and it did test positive for blood. And she did take samples to to test it at a lab, but because of the humidity in Florida, the time frame, the uh, elements in Florida, the, the the weather, the humidity, and the worst is the mortared wall, which is lime, which will you know is very corrosive uh, and will you know destroy any DNA. So no, she was never ever, ever able to get DNA, and I even went in there on my own after you know after that that was they did that show to collect more samples now i i didn't have permission they had permission to go in there from the mall but i had no permission to go in there but i went in there under the presumption that anything i do is legal as long as i don't get caught (laughs) so yeah so i went in there and took my own samples and i sent them out to orchard uh I believe it's Orchard Selmark in Dallas, Texas, and to do DNA analysis of it. And they came up with nothing. And my thinking was they do a lot of work with police departments and maybe they didn't want to come up with nothing, with anything. So I went, I got more samples, plus some of the samples they returned to me. And I went to DNA labs in Boca right here in Florida. And this time when I filled out all the forms, I didn't mention Adam's name you know, I, I changed it to a case. I just put victim and, uh, you know, I, I changed everything around so they wouldn't know what this was about, but they still didn't come up with nothing. And sure enough, when I walked into the lobby there, they had placards all over the walls from police departments all over the country. So, yeah, I, I know they do a lot of work with police departments, but I'm not saying that it's because of that that they didn't come up with anything. When the doctor there told me she couldn't get any DNA, I believed her, you know, it, it's it's just not that easy to get DNA from from that environment. And just
0: to be clear, this is a room that Jeffrey Dahmer would have had access to at the shop there that he, you know, would have been readily available to him.
2: Right. The back door, I have photos in my book, even on my website, uh, frustrated witness.com and uh, justice for I have two websites. You can see some of the photos from the meter room. And there's one photo. You can see the back door one seven Oh, 00 or one seven Oh for the sub shop was seven one seven Oh four zero. And you can see the back door and the dumpster are right there. And the meter room is right there where you go into the meter room. So yeah, it was right there outside the back door to the sub shop where he was working.
0: So Jeffrey Dahmer has already found quote found one dead body and has been questioned by police. This is, you know, just a couple of weeks before Adam disappears. Let's talk about maybe the biggest piece of evidence against Dahmer in this case, and that is the blue van.
2: Right. Now, that blue van has been cited at all three locations relevant to the Adam Walsh abduction or the Adam Walsh case, I should say. Uh, That is the site where Jeffrey Dahmer was working. Okay, the site where Adam Walsh was abducted from the Hollywood Mall as well as the Florida Turnpike, where Adam severed head was found, that blue van has been sighted by four witnesses at that site.
0: So the blue van belonged to the sub shop where Jeffrey worked, correct?
2: Almost. Yes, you can say that, yes. Actually, the, there were two stores that were owned by Mike Pelletier. He owned Mr. Pizza, which is about 10 blocks north of the sub shop. And he owned uh, Sunshine Subs as well. The van was usually at the uh, pizza place because that's where they delivered pizzas. Uh, They had three trucks, three vehicles. Back in those days, uh, nowadays, they use your own vehicle. But back in those days, they had the three vehicles that they used. Two were white pickup trucks and one was a blue van. Now, this was summertime. So it was off-season. In in, the season... uh, they use all three vehicles for deliveries, according to Mike Pelton. Uh, but in the off-season, they only use the two white vans, and the blue van is just sitting there behind the store. And the employees were using it just for their own use. They were going to Fort Lauderdale to clubs. Um, move, some were using it to move their furniture around to different apartments when they would move and things like that. So everybody had access to the blue van. Nobody really watched it that much.
0: So Dahmer included could have just hopped into that van and taken off anywhere that he wanted to and it nobody was really accounting for it at that time.
2: Right. Well, I mean, the blue van has been sighted at all three locations relevant to the abduction. So, yeah, you know, and and the composites matched Jeffrey Dahmer and the witnesses say it was Jeffrey Dahmer from multiple locations. So, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't anybody else that was using it. And, you know, it was definitely Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: So like you said, the blue van appears at the Hollywood Mall on the day that Adam Walsh disappears. There were actually encounters reported years later to authorities of people coming forward saying, hey, we saw a man dragging a little boy into the van that day, right?
2: Right. But it wasn't even years later. It was the next day, days later. So what started coming forward?
0: What were some of those encounters? Do you remember anyone specifically? Right.
2: The first one was Timothy Partenberg, who was 10 years old. He's the one that started the Blue Van Bolo. You know, that's the be on the Lookout uh, sheet that was put out by the police department. And it was in every police court in South Florida, if not the state, hanging on the dash on their dashboard there. You know, because every police officer was on the lookout for blue vans. They stopped nearly 7,000 blue vans in the state of Florida. If you had a blue van back then, you, you remember the DC snipers, how they were searching for white vans? Right. And it turned out it wasn't even a white van in that case. But yeah, in 1981, they were stopping everybody that had a blue van. If you had a blue van and made a U turn, they considered you were trying to get away and they would pull you over, and go after you. If you had a blue van and you sold it, they figured you were trying to get rid of evidence and they would really give you some scrutiny. So uh, <laughs> it was tough having a blue van back then after Adam's abduction. But uh, what happened was, like I said, since it didn't match James Campbell, the lead detective, his name was Jack Hoffman, who had dismissed the, that witness, Timothy Pottenberg. So along with dismissing him went the blue van and the composite that matched. And, uh, but they, they didn't tell anybody because he wanted to keep everybody busy looking for the blue van while he went after James Campbell. So the police were still stopping all these blue vans, and uh, there were, like I say, 7,000 van stops at the time in searches. They were going to junkyards looking for VIN numbers on blue vans and doing checks on them, everything. It was a big, big hunt for that blue van, the largest what, vehicle search in the state of Florida history.
0: What exactly did Timothy Pottenberg say that he had seen that day that made them right. zero in on it?
2: Okay. Timothy Pottenberg went to the Hollywood Mall with his mother and his grandmother. They parked in the north parking lot, right near where Bay where Walsh parked, only a few spaces away. They came into the mall through, through the Sears, north entrance, and went into the uh, wanted all, their way all the way over into the mall. And they eventually ended up eating, having lunch in the food court. And while they were eating, as soon as they were finished eating... Uh, they wanted uh, to leave, but his mother Marilyn didn 't feel like walking back to get the uh, where the vehicle was, so she asked uh, Carolyn Hudson, the grandmother and and uh, Timmy if they would go get the vehicle and drive it around to the east side uh, of the mall because the entrance is right there the or the exit is right there, and pick her up so they headed out. To get the van, and they stopped in the toy department. Timothy wanted to stop in the toy department. That's when he saw this guy fumbling around with uh, some kind of a toy or something. And he was just standing there, but he didn't look like he was interested in the toy. He just kept staring at all these kids, you know? And then finally, he just ran out the north exit and ran towards the uh, east. Well, Timothy and his grandmother would leave in anyway, so they were right behind him. And as they stepped off the sidewalk, here comes this guy speeding in his blue van, the same guy. And he almost ran them over. They had to jump back on the sidewalk to get out of the way. And it sped around to the west side of the mall. So Timothy wanted to see why the guy was in such a rush. So he walked around to the west side to see. And the grandmother, she was, she's just headed towards the car. But Timothy ran around and he saw the guy bringing this kid and tossing him into the blue van. And so... He came forward several days later also, and that's where they, what started the composite, the first composite that came out, that is also the spitting image of Jeffrey Dahmer and and the blue van. Now, years later, after the case files were released and I saw Timothy Pottenberg's name, I went and tracked him down and I went to visit him in central Florida. I knocked on his door, his wife answered the door, and I told her why I was there, and she Uh, He was sleeping, she told me, but she got him up out of bed. He came out, and uh, when I was talking to him, he said, listen, they closed the case, and I'm telling my grandmother, that's not the guy. (laughs) That's not the guy. And so I started showing him photos and composites, and when I showed him, Jeffrey Dunn, he says, that's him. That's the guy I tried to describe when I made that composite. He says, I remember this like it was yesterday. Wow. You know? Yeah.
0: Did he describe the child? In great yes. detail?
2: Oh, yeah, perfectly. Yes. Yes, everything.
0: And what did he say about the kid that, that he had seen oh, he being thrown into him. the van? The clothing really.
2: and everything matched Adam. Yeah. Wow.
0: There was another encounter that I read. Um, there was a man named Bill Bowen who was a TV producer. He also saw a man putting a child into that same van, correct?
2: Correct. Now, uh, Bill was going there because he was going to the uh, Hollywood Sears. Uh, He wanted to go to the service counter to change his address because he was moving to Alabama, Birmingham. So as he pulled into the parking lot, he saw this blue van parked in the fire lane right next to the exit door. And there was this guy dragging this kid out of the store. And he was holding them up in one hand. Kid is screaming, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. You're not my daddy. You're not my daddy. And he says, I'm taking you to your daddy. And he threw oh, him gosh. into the van like, quote, unquote, a sack of potatoes. That's his wow. quote. And then he jumped in the van and took off so fast that he, that he had burning rubber. Bill says he could still smell the burning rubber to this day. And Bill tried to get the tag number, but he only got a partial tag number. But he did get some of the digits, but he can't remember what they are now because he gave them to the police. And they have, he, he kept calling the Hollywood Police Department to ask him if they want him to come in for an interview. But he never could get anybody. He was getting answer machines all the time. Finally, around the fifth time he tried to call, he got a live person. And they told him the person he needs to speak to is on vacation. He needs to call back in two weeks. So he explained to them that he's moving to Alabama so they said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Give us your phone number and address, and we'll contact you. But nobody's ever contacted Bill, ever, ever. Ten years later, Jeffrey Dahmer is captured. It made every newspaper across the United States, including the one in Birmingham. He immediately saw Dahmer's uh, mugshot in the paper there the same way I did, the same day I did. And he said it hit him like a baseball bat when he saw that mugshot. And he made his way on his own all the way back to Florida, Hollywood Police Department with the paper and showed it to them and I told them this is the guy. And they asked him the same question they asked me. Well, what are you doing coming in now? How come you didn't come in in 81? He said, but I did come here in 81. You know, I gave the, one of your cops the, the, the tag number.
1: And we're going to leave you right there, guys. That's part one. And part two gets even crazier. I can't wait for you guys to hear what happens next. You're on the edge of your seat just like me. We'll be back next week for part two of this amazing interview with Willis Morgan. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast find us weekly on all your podcasting platforms spotify itunes stitcher wherever you subscribe our theme song was written and produced by annie weibel for serial spirits the podcast check us out on facebook at www.facebook.com backslash serial spirits you can always find Serial Spirits on www.paranormalwarehouse.com. Check out all the amazing shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer. Also on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Guys, be aware and be safe. We'll see you next time.